Chapter 2, Part 1 of The Quest of the Historical Jesus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Quest of the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer, translated by William Montgomery. Chapter 2, Part 1 Hermann Samuel Rimaris. Bibliography Hermann Samuel Rimaris. The Aims of Jesus and His Disciples, a further installment of the anonymous Wolfenbutel Fragments, published by Gotthold Ephraim Lessing, Brunswick, 1778, 276 pages. Johann Zalomo Zimla, Reply to the Anonymous Fragments, especially to that entitled The Aims of Jesus and His Disciples, Halle, 1779, 432 pages. Before Rimarus, no one had attempted to form a historical conception of the life of Jesus. Luther had not so much as felt that he cared to gain a clear idea of the order of the recorded events. Speaking of the chronology of the cleansing of the temple, which in John falls at the beginning, in the synoptists near the close of Jesus' public life, he remarks, quote, The Gospels follow no order in recording the acts and miracles of Jesus, and the matter is not, after all, of much importance. If a difficulty arises in regard to the Holy Scripture and we cannot solve it, we must just let it alone. When the Lutheran theologians began to consider the question of harmonizing the events, things were still worse. Osiander, who lived from 1498 to 1552, in his Harmony of the Gospels, maintained the principle that if an event is recorded more than once in the Gospels, in different connections, it happened more than once in different connections. The daughter of Jairus was therefore raised from the dead several times. On one occasion, Jesus allowed the devils whom he cast out of a single demoniac to enter into a herd of swine. On another occasion, those whom he cast out of two demoniacs, there were two cleansings of the temple, and so forth. The correct view of the synoptic gospels as being interdependent was first formulated by Griesbach. The only life of Jesus written prior to the time of Rimaris, which has any interest for us, was composed by a Jesuit in the Persian language. The author was the Indian missionary Hieronymus Javier, nephew of Francis Javier, and it was designed for the use of Akbar, the Mughal emperor, who, in the latter part of the 16th century, had become the most powerful potentate in Hindustan. In the 17th century, the Persian text was brought to Europe by a merchant, and was translated into Latin by Louis de Deu, a theologian of the Reformed Church, whose intention in publishing it was to discredit Catholicism. It is a skillful falsification of the life of Jesus in which the omissions and the additions taken from the Apocrypha are inspired by the sole purpose of presenting to the open-minded ruler a glorious Jesus in whom there should be nothing to offend him. Thus, there had been nothing to prepare the world for a work of such power as that of Rimaris. It is true there appeared earlier, in 1768, a Life of Jesus by Johann Jakob Hess, who lived from 1741 to 1828, 
written from the standpoint of the older rationalism, but it retains so much supernaturalism and follows so much the lines of a paraphrase of the Gospels that there was nothing to indicate to the world what a master-stroke the spirit of the time was preparing. Not much is known about Rimarus. For his contemporaries he had no existence, and it was Strauss who first made his name known in literature. He was born in Hamburg on the 22nd of December, 1694, and spent his life there as a professor of Oriental languages. He died in 1768. Several of his writings appeared during his lifetime, all of them asserting the claims of rational religion as against the faith of the church, one of them, for example, being an essay on the leading truths of natural religion. His magnum opus, however, which laid the historic basis of his attacks, was only circulated, during his lifetime, among his acquaintances as an anonymous manuscript. In 1774, Lessing began to publish the most important portions of it, and up to 1778 had published seven fragments, thereby involving himself in a quarrel with Goetze, the chief pastor of Hamburg. The manuscript of the whole, which runs to four thousand pages, is preserved in the Hamburg Municipal Library. The following are the titles of fragments which he published. The Toleration of the Deists the decrying of reason in the pulpit, the impossibility of a revelation which all men should have good grounds for believing, the passing of the Israelites through the Red Sea, showing that the books of the Old Testament were not written to reveal a religion, concerning the story of the resurrection, the aims of Jesus and his disciples, the monograph on the passing of the Israelites through the Red Sea is one of the ablest, wittiest, and most acute which has ever been written. It exposes all the impossibilities of the narrative in the priestly codex, and all the inconsistencies which arise from the combination of various sources, although Rimarus has not the slightest inkling that the separation of these sources would afford the real solution of the problem. To say that the fragment on the aims of Jesus and his disciples, is a magnificent piece of work, is barely to do it justice. This essay is not only one of the greatest events in the history of criticism, it is also a masterpiece of general literature. The language is as a rule crisp and terse, pointed and epigrammatic, the language of a man who is not engaged in literary composition, but is wholly concerned with the facts. At times, however, it rises to heights of passionate feeling, and then it is as though the fires of a volcano were painting lurid pictures upon dark clouds. Seldom has there been a hate so eloquent, so lofty a scorn, but then it is seldom that a work has been written in the just consciousness of so absolute a superiority to contemporary opinion. And withal, there is dignity and serious purpose Rimarus's work is no pamphlet. Lessing could not, of course, accept its standpoint. His idea of revelation and his conception of the person of Jesus were much deeper than those of the fragmentist. He was a thinker, Rimarus only a historian. But this was the first time that a really historical mind, thoroughly conversant with the sources, 
had undertaken the criticism of the tradition. It was Lessing's greatness that he grasped the significance of this criticism, and felt that it must lead either to the destruction or to the recasting of the idea of revelation. He recognized that the introduction of the historical element would transform and deepen rationalism. Convinced that the fateful moment had arrived, he disregarded the scruples of Rymarus's family and the objections of Nikolai and Mendelssohn, and, though inwardly trembling for that which he himself held sacred, he flung the torch with his own hand. Zimla, at the close of his refutation of the fragment, ridicules its editor in the following apologue. Quote, a prisoner was once brought before the Lord Mayor of London on a charge of arson. He had been seen coming down from the upper story of the burning house. Yesterday, so ran his defense, about four o'clock I went into my neighbor's storeroom and saw there a burning candle which the servants had carelessly forgotten. In the course of the night it would have burned down and set fire to the stairs. To make sure that the fire should break out in the daytime, I threw some straw upon it. The flames burst out at the skylight, the fire engines came hurrying up, and the fire, which in the night might have been dangerous, was promptly extinguished. "'Why did you not yourself pick up the candle and put it out?' asked the Lord Mayor. "'If I had put out the candle, the servants would not have learned to be more careful. Now that there has been such a fuss about it, they will not be so careless in the future.' odd very odd said the lord mayor he is not a criminal only a little weak in the head so he had him shut up in the madhouse and there he lies to this day the story is extraordinarily apposite only that lessing was not mad he knew quite well what he was doing his object was to show how an unseen enemy had pushed his parallels up to the very walls and to summon to the defense, quote, someone who should be as nearly the ideal defender of religion as the fragmentist was the ideal assailant, close quote. Once, with prophetic insight into the future, he says, quote, the Christian traditions must be explained by the inner truth of Christianity, and no written traditions can give it that inner truth if it does not itself possess it, close quote. Rymarus takes as his starting point the question regarding the content of the preaching of Jesus. He says, quote, We are justified in drawing an absolute distinction between the teaching of the apostles in their writings and what Jesus himself in his own lifetime proclaimed and taught. Close quote. What belongs to the preaching of Jesus is clearly to be recognized. It is contained in two phrases of identical meaning repent and believe the gospel, or, as it is put elsewhere, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven must, however, be understood, quote, according to Jewish ways of thought, close quote. Neither Jesus nor the Baptist ever explained this expression. Therefore, they must have been content to have it understood in its known and customary sense. That means that Jesus took his stand within the Jewish religion and accepted its messianic expectations without in any way correcting them. If he gives a new development to this religion, 
it is only in so far that he proclaims as near at hand the realization of ideals and hopes which were alive in thousands of hearts there was thus no need for detailed instruction regarding the nature of the kingdom of heaven the catechism and confession of the church at its commencement consisted of a single phrase belief was not difficult Quote, they need only believe the gospel namely that jesus was about to bring in the kingdom of god Close quote. footnote the quotations inserted without special introduction are of course from Reimarus. it is dr schweitzer's method to lead up by a paragraph of exposition to one of these characteristic phrases translator End footnote. as there were many among the jews who were already waiting for the kingdom of god it was no wonder that in a few days nay in a few hours some thousands believed although they had been told only that jesus was the promised prophet this was the sum total of what the disciples knew about the kingdom of god when they were sent out by their master to proclaim its coming their hearers would naturally think of the customary meaning of the term and the hopes which attached themselves to it Quote, the purpose of sending out such propagandists could only be that the Jews who groaned under the Roman yoke and had long cherished the hope of deliverance should be stirred up all over Judea and assemble themselves in their thousands. Jesus must have known, too, that if the people believed his messengers, they would look about for an earthly deliverer and turn to him for this purpose. The gospel, therefore, meant nothing more or less to all who heard it than that under the leadership of jesus the kingdom of messiah was about to be brought in for them there was no difficulty in accepting the belief that he was the messiah the son of god for this belief did not involve anything metaphysical the nation was the son of god the kings of the covenant people were the sons of god the Messiah was in a preeminent sense the Son of God. Thus, even in his messianic claims, Jesus remained within the limit of humanity. The fact that he did not need to explain to his contemporaries what he meant by the kingdom of God constitutes a difficulty for us. The parables do not enlighten us, for they presuppose a knowledge of the conception. Quote, if we could not gather from the writings of the jews some further information as to what was understood at the time by the messiah and the kingdom of god these points of primary importance would be very obscure and incomprehensible if therefore we desire to gain a historical understanding of jesus teaching we must leave behind what we learned in our catechism regarding the metaphysical divine sonship the trinity and similar dogmatic conceptions, and go out into a wholly Jewish world of thought. Only those who carry the teachings of the Catechism back into the preaching of the Jewish Messiah will arrive at the idea that he was the founder of a new religion. To all unprejudiced persons it is manifest, quote, that Jesus had not the slightest intention of doing away with the Jewish religion and putting another in its place, Close quote from matthew chapter five verse eighteen it is evident that jesus did not break with the law but took his stand upon it unreservedly 
If there was anything at all new in his preaching, it was the righteousness which was requisite for the kingdom of God. The righteousness of the law will no longer suffice in the time of the coming kingdom. A new and deeper morality must come into being. This demand is the only point in which the preaching of Jesus went beyond the ideas of his contemporaries. But this new morality does not do away with the law, for he explains it as a fulfillment of the old commandments. His followers no doubt broke with the law later on. They did so, however, not in pursuance of a command of Jesus, but under the pressure of circumstances, at the time when they were forced out of Judaism and obliged to found a new religion. Jesus shared the Jewish racial exclusiveness wholly and unreservedly. According to Matthew chapter 10 verse 5, he forbade his disciples to declare to the Gentiles the coming of the kingdom of God. Evidently, therefore, his purpose did not embrace them. Had it been otherwise, the hesitation of Peter in Acts chapters 10 and 11, and the necessity of justifying the conversion of Cornelius, would be incomprehensible. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are no evidence that Jesus intended to found a new religion. In the first place, the genuineness of the command to baptize in Matthew chapter 28 verse 19 is questionable not only as a saying ascribed to the risen Jesus, but also because it is universalistic in outlook, and because it implies the doctrine of the Trinity, and, consequently, the metaphysical divine sonship of Jesus. In this, it is inconsistent with the earliest traditions regarding the practice of baptism in the Christian community, for in the earliest times, as we learn from the Acts and from Paul, it was the custom to baptize not in the name of the Trinity, but in the name of Jesus, the Messiah. But furthermore, it is questionable whether baptism really goes back to Jesus at all. He himself baptized no one in his own lifetime, and never commanded any of his converts to be baptized. So we cannot be sure about the origin of baptism, though we can be sure of its meaning. Baptism in the name of Jesus signified only that Jesus was the Messiah, Quote, for the only change which the teaching of Jesus made in their religion was that whereas they had formerly believed in a deliverer of Israel who was to come in the future, they now believed in a deliverer who was already present. End of chapter 2, part 1